Perhaps you have uh, heard or read about Jerry McDonald. Um, Jerry McDonald has been in the news uh, recently because his body was just found after 70 days of missing in the Cascade Mountains in coastal Oregon. Jerry McDonald was found in his 1997 GMC pickup truck. Um, We will not go down the trail of whether or not that was a wise purchase on his part. Though some of you are eagerly committed to a different standard, he had a working pickup truck in which he was found. He was found with several discarded and empty gallons of water. This man had come into the Cascade Mountains with a working vehicle, chained tires, lots of water, preparations with food, and even the capacity to keep himself warm. And yet, Jerry McDonald was found 70 days after going missing, having succumbed to hypothermia and hunger. He both froze and starved to death. No way to know which one took him first. He was found with $5,000 of cash in his vehicle. He was found with a journal that he had kept every day of his ordeal. He had taken a 1970s calendar transitioned it to the modern day dates and had used it as a journal. On February 14th, seven days after he began his trip into the mountains, he journaled that a snowstorm had come and that he was trapped in a a vicious snowstorm. Somewhere in the midst of this process of trying to survive, Jerry McDonald wrote in his journal, No More Food. Amazingly, What was not found with Jerry McDonald was any form of GPS, any form of cell phone or communication device, and most shockingly, no map. Jerry McDonald was only three miles from a town that could have saved his life. Had he taken one jug of water and a fraction of his food, and his map, and left and walked, he would have had less than one day's journey to Marion Forks, Oregon, where no doubt there would have been an end to the story, and we certainly wouldn't be talking about him this morning. He didn't have a map. He didn't have a directional device. He didn't have communication as a resource for him. He had everything he needed to live through his Sudden misfortune with the snowstorm that that came upon him so rapidly. But he didn't have the information needed to utilize his resources for his own survival. So he hunkered down for 70 days in his pickup truck cab and died. It's vital for us as a church family if we are going to survive if our church family will be marked by persistence and faithfulness and survival as a people of God gathered together in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the purpose of extending His gospel message to others for the glory of His name, it will be essential that we rehearse our basic direction. That we constantly look back at the map. That we see clearly the route that must be taken. That we use our GPS, our compass, our roadmap to biblical ministry. Now, it's, it's common amongst, uh, at least amongst pastors and church leadership or people who talk about the church to talk about philosophy of ministry. And I don't know what that means when you hear it, but I can explain what it means here within our context at Grace Church. The philosophy of ministry is the application of the doctrine of Scripture. So the Bible teaches truth, and we must then live the truth that it teaches as a church family. The definitions or the outline of the applications of the truth we call the philosophy of ministry. And we've broken them down into ten ministry commitments. There are ten functional, foundational truths that guide us as a church family. They're our ministry commitments. They are our roadmap. They're our survival guide, if you will. They are a GPS device to 
to remind us of where we stand in relationship to what the Scriptures teach. So this is no man-made scheme. We don't have a, a boxed set that we ordered on the internet for how to do church. How to be a successful church. We simply have come to Scripture, seen what Scripture says, taken the truths of Scripture, broken them into then applicational commitments, and that gives us direction as to where we're going as a church family. And to remain faithful, we will need to come back again and again and again and look at the map. Otherwise, without a fresh conviction, a first-generation conviction of the truth, we quickly slip into tradition. And what was done because it was biblically informed in our conscience as leaders for one generation in the next generation becomes the first fruits of tradition. We do what we do because we do it. And by the third generation, there is no conviction and there is no understanding of why we are involved in the activities that we're involved in and we are open. The gates are open at that point for failure within our local church. And history... Church history is full of churches found in the cab of their pickup truck. And so it's our burden as a pastoral team that we review as a church family and that we become convinced as a family, as members of a body, that we are convinced of why we do what we do as much as we are convinced of what we do. So perhaps there are things about Grace Church that even if you're a guest um, or you're a friend of Grace, you attend here, you have not made a, a commitment to this body for accountability and service. But there are questions that have come in your mind. Why do they do that? Uh, the answer might be, I don't know why we do that. Or the answer might be, we're doing that because we're trying to get over to doing this. So this is actually a transition stage to something something else in development. But you should expect us to always be able to say everything that happens here is traced back to communication from God to us about the ministry of our church. So Scripture becomes the exclusive source of our doctrine, which means Scripture is the basis of our philosophy. So what we believe fuels what we do. That's true in your life. That's true in our church's life. Faith and practice are always connected biblically. Now, there are 10 ministry commitments, and if, if you haven't thought about them this week, and I would guess the vast majority of you have not thought about them, let me review them for you just briefly. Grace Church is committed to God and His authoritative word. Number two, God-centered worship. Number three, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. Number four, making disciples locally and globally. Number five, grace-motivated spiritual growth. Number six, dependent, expectant prayer. Number seven, plurality of servant leaders. Number eight, corporate ministry. That means every member ministering. Number nine, authenticity and accountability to each other. And number ten, church discipline and restoration. That list of ten gives us a skeletal framework from which to build the ministry life that is Grace Church of the Valley. You are Grace Church. This becomes the, 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 the road map for the direction that we walk as a church family. Caring very much about what the Lord of the church has said about what we must be about. So come back to that first ministry commitment and we're going to spend the next several weeks working through these ten ministry commitments. We're going to break them up. Some of them we'll deal with in order. Some may be out of order. Some will take two or three Sundays to unpack, like this first one. Some we will hit one-shot wonders and we'll try to accomplish biblical clarity on why we are committed to what we're committed to as a church family. But all of this, I hope, will be for the strengthening of our conviction in what we are doing. And I trust we're doing something. At least conviction and awareness, information of the direction that we are on as a church family for the glory of God and in allegiance to Jesus Christ. So in that first ministry commitment, it's followed by an explanation. It says this, 
Uh, We are committed to God and His authoritative Word. The Bible is God's revelation to us in completion, perfection, and absolute authority. Therefore, consistent expository preaching and application of what God has said in His Word is a must. This living Word is the primary means of our knowing and worshiping Him in truth. So, that leaves us with a big question. Usually, we have one big idea overarching a paragraph of Scripture. This morning, we're going to ask one big question, and I'm going to attempt to answer it with our Bibles as we study together. The one big question is, why, why must the Bible be central in our worship? Why must the Bible be central to life at Grace Church? If you want to get that into common vernacular, why are we so committed to the Bible? Lighten up. Why so much Bible? That's the question that we're going to try to answer. And it's a legitimate question to ask. We're going to start broad. We're going to look at a bunch of passages. So get your whatever passage turning fingers go to work. You might want to start your stretching exercises now. We're going to move through the Bible. We're going to read. We're going to see things. We're going to move, move, move. We're going to go broad, and then we're going to go narrow. And we're going to get to one text, and we'll finish with one text that we're going to focus our attention on to answer the question, why must the Bible be central or priority in our life as a church family? Okay? So starting broad. Let's, let's begin broad. So first, the broad approach to answering this question. And we're going to begin in Psalm number 19. So go to the 19th Psalm. If you're new to your Bible, the Psalms are somewhere close to the middle. You might open up in the middle to Isaiah. Go left. And uh, the Psalms are the Hebrew songbook. There's 150 of them. They're marked out by numbers. You'll find at the top of your page. We're going to go for the 19th one. And then it'll have a colon and another number, which is a subdivision of that 19th psalm. So, psalm number 19. And let's find out from God's Word why God's Word must be central in our lives as a church family and certainly then less central in our lives as, as human beings, as followers of Christ. Psalm number 19. And we're going to read in verse number 7. You can follow along as I read out loud. These are... God's words, God talking to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is is pure, enlightening the eyes, turning the lights on. In the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. More by them is your, moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. The 19th Psalm. From verse number 7 down to verse number 11 moves us from what was general revelation of God in verses 1 through 6 now to special revelation through His spoken Word, His recounted Word to us. So the heavens declare the glory of God and that is general to all of humanity. And now special communication has happened in God's revelation through His Word. And the psalmist is not lost for helping us value this Word of God. Notice the the descriptive words that are used of the Word of God. In verse number 7, it is perfect and it is life-giving. Reviving the soul has the idea of CPR. All vital signs have ceased. There's a flat line. And the only thing that revives the soul, the immaterial being of a man, The only paddles that could shock back to life, a dead heart, are found here. It is the law of Yahweh. It is the Word of God that is perfect, that is complete, that is without deficiency and is capable of giving life. Furthermore, the testimony of the Lord. These are all synonyms and ways to describe 
the Word of God, the testimony. Think here of a, of a courtroom and there's a testimony taking place. Only the testifying agent is not a person who's being cross-examined by an attorney. It's a book. The testimony of Yahweh is His Word. And the psalmist describes it as sure, as in it never fails. The Word of God never fails. Making wise the simple. So a negative reality takes place with the Word of God. It takes those who in the human sense, intellectually, in a cultural awareness, are wise people. And it makes them simpletons. Because it humbles them by communicating clearly who God is and who they are. The wise are made simple by the sure testifying of the law of Yahweh. The precepts, the principles of Yahweh are right There is nothing wrong in your Bible. There is no command of your Bible. There is no communication for wisdom in your Scriptures that is wrong. You cannot improve upon the wisdom or the commands that are here. You cannot fill out God's Word to you. It is right. Always and in every way, right. Psalmist stacks these descriptions on top. Of one another. This righteousness of the word rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It is undefiled. There is no selfishness. There is no sin involved in the commands of Yahweh. They are pure. And they open the eyes of sinful humanity. The rules of the Lord are true. There is no falsehood to be found in your Bible. Even as falsehood is revealed in your Bible, it is truth. So when you're reading a lie taking place, it is truth that the lie took place. There is nothing in your Scripture that is untrue. Do you you track with that? Sometimes people will say, well, there's lies. There are people lying in the Scriptures. Exactly. And it is being truly recounted that they lied. There is no part of the Word of God that is untrue. Perhaps this is a great barrier in our culture today with the miraculous and supernatural recounting of God's power. We stand firmly on the truthfulness of the rules of the Lord, of the Word of the Lord. We look foolish knowing God's wisdom and power through His Word. Six days? Yes. A fish? Yes. Three days in a belly? No oxygen tank? Yes. How? Yes. Empty tomb? Yes. Dead guy wrapped up in linens, walking out, smelling really bad? Yes. Because it is truth and it is righteous altogether. And all of those bring us to verses 10 and 11, which are the capstone, the the turning point of, of implication. Brothers and sisters, if this is what is true about the Word, then 10 and 11 are always going to be true. And I, like you, have seasons where the Word of God seems seems distant from my desires. My my passion for knowing God through His Word seems cold. And that is always, always, always traced back to my renewing my mind with what is true about His Word. Because what is true about His Word leads to verse number 10. It is more desirable than a pile of gold. Not just a piece of gold, a pile of gold. And it is more desirable than the sweetest sweetness. So the richest riches don't compare to the longing for this word when we recognize the truth about this word. And the sweetest sweetness seems sour in comparison to the precious communication from God to man in this book. Why 
must the Word be central to Grace Church of the Valley? Because of what is true about the Word. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, desirable, sweet, warning and rewarding. It is the basis of our life having revived our souls. There is nowhere else to turn. But we will. We'll turn to another passage within this one book that is the center of our existence. Let's go to the 119th Psalm. Just a few pages over the 119th Psalm and let's see further evidence of the necessity for the centrality of the Word of God in our worship as a church family. Psalm 119, you're familiar with this. If you're a seasoned believer walking with the Lord, this is the longest of the Psalms. What you may not be familiar with is what in the world those words mean at the top of the paragraphs or stanzas. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Wow, Zion. Unfortunately, that makes my chest get tight because that's a quiz that I once had. That's a Hebrew alphabet. This is an amazing psalm. Now, I'm just going to tell you something before we see what it says about the Word of God. This is an incredible work of art. Here's why every single stanza is marked by a letter of the alphabet. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and every stanza... Every stanza is marked by the letter that is at the top. So, Aleph, let's just make it English, and it's an A. Now, here's what happens in the Hebrew language. Every word that begins every line in the Hebrew poetry starts with that letter. So, the first stanza has all A's on the right of the column, because Hebrews read backwards. So, on the left-hand column, if you're looking at the paragraph, in English, if we could somehow transfer this, every letter is an A. You go to the next stanza, every letter is a B. Every letter is a C, a D, an E. The whole alphabet in Hebrew is represented here in this 119th Psalm. Unbelievable masterpiece. And its primary theme is the the superiority of the Bible, of the Word of God to the psalmist. Fascinating. We cannot, obviously, read through the 119th Psalm unless we want to go ahead and commit to something that we've never committed to before, which is hours of being here together in this time of study. But I can't get away from this without at least highlighting what is here. So let me just, let me just do a 30,000-foot flyover of the 119th Psalm and let's see the truths that are here. And, and if you've never done a study of this, Come back and spend a few months, maybe one a day, recognizing the truth. At the end of your Bible reading, if you're doing a consecutive reading, you could come back and take one of these stanzas and your heart would be fed and communicated clearly about the value of God's Word. In verse number 1, probably some of the most familiar territory because of the beginning, blessed are those whose way is blameless, And the blamelessness of anyone is connected in the next words, who walk in the law of Yahweh. So the Bible is the basis of the blessing for the obedient. It's the standard for obedience. Verse number 9. If you go to the first part of the second stanza, we find that the, the Bible is the means of purity. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The word of God is not only the the basis of obedience and then the blessing of obedience, but it is the means of purity before God. Verse number 17, in the Gimel stanza, we find that it is the delight of the saints or of God's people. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul, verse 20, is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is is the testimony, the poetic, inspired testimony of someone whose delight was the law of God. It is life for the people of God. Verse number 25, which we read at the beginning of our worship. Give me life according to your word. 
Verse number 33, it is instruction for our living. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what He wants from me. There is one place to turn. It is His Word. The revelation of the covenant promises from God are found in His Word. Verse number 41. Hope for His people is found in His Word. Verse 49. Inheritance for the saints is wrapped up in His Word. Verse number 57 and following. The righteous standard of God is established in His Word. Verse number 65. And then again in verse number 137. There is hope in suffering from the Word. In verse number 73, in verse number 81. There is a record of God's faithfulness to His people in verse number 89 in the Word. There is meditation from the Word for the people of God in verse number 97. There is illumination for life. There is brightness on the path of life in the Word, verse 105. There is unified revelation of God, verse 113. There is a means of understanding your circumstances no matter how difficult they may be. Verse 129. There is practical resource for the living life before God in the Word. Verse 145. The Word is the basis for the fruits of salvation. Verse 153. The Word is the awe-inspiring revelation. If your worship is dull, it is connected to your interaction with the Word of God. Verse 161. And it is the perspective-giving word for the people of God. Verse 169. This word is without, without end in its value. So why must the Bible be central in our worship? Well, because of what is true about the Bible. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and we can move all the way into our New Covenant Scriptures in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Probably even more of you are familiar with this passage because here it is clearly communicated that the Bible is from God. Now, I understand that this is the Bible talking about the Bible. We believe the Bible because of the self-testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the validity and faithfulness of this record. Therefore, when the Bible talks about the Bible, we believe what it says about itself. And in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, it says very clear things about itself. Paul, writing to Timothy, trying to bolster his confidence in the gospel ministry, says this in verse 16, Every scripture, all of the writing, the, the, the scripture, all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now what, is, what does Paul say? He says the Bible is actually authored by God through human authors. So it is, it is both from God, breathed out by God, and penned by real people with real circumstances. Paul was really writing to Timothy. Timothy was really pastoring at Ephesus. And this is a genuine personal letter. And in the miracle of God's providence, it is also breathed out by God without error for the benefits that accompany this description of inspiration. Inspiration does not mean what it has come to mean in our culture when we talk about it in relationship to the Bible. Um, perhaps we think of such frivolous tunes as, You Are My Inspiration. Um, we say things like, That was very inspiring. Uh, I've had people say that about preaching, and it, I mean, it makes me real skittish. Uh, it's really close to the actual theological definition of inspiration. Inspiring or, or personal motivation from another human being is not correlating to what we're describing here. And that's why our translation says breathed out by God. It literally means the breath of God is found in the words of God and the words of God are in all Scripture. Old Testament canon, New Testament canon. They're from Him, about Him, for Him. 
to us. And not only is it from God, it is always useful. It is a profit. There is no time, brothers and sisters, when you would come to the Word or we would come to the Word as a church family and we would end up in the lost category because we went to the Bible. Do you see that? Profitable Word is, is, is meaningful to us because the opposite is losing out financially. So making an investment in Scripture never comes out as a loss. There is no time when you would seek God's wisdom, you would seek to, to understand His mind, and you would come out with a better idea somewhere else. It's profitable. And it's profitable for specific work in us as Christians. It's profitable for our teaching, our doctrine. What we believe must flow from this God-breathed Word for reproof, which is confrontation, for correction, that is a repositioning of our, our path, and for training, discipline in righteousness. This is where we find the standard of God's Word. And more than that, it is sufficient for the task. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in verse 17. He's talking to Timothy about being a man of God. He wants him to be bold in the truth, bold for the gospel. And he says, you've got this book. Timothy, you were taught this book from the time you were a little kid. This book is breathed out by God. It has all of these useful purposes that only profit. And if you have this word, you need nothing else. Now this is, this is one of the most precious truths to young pastors like Timothy and like myself. Psalm 119 verses 99 through 101 says that the Word of God brings wisdom beyond even the aged. The psalmist says, I know more than my teachers because of the Word. The Word is sufficient for every good work. It is competent in the hands of the man of God. It is sufficient for the task. There is no part of Scripture that is not meaningful and useful. And the whole of Scripture is sufficient for all that needs to be done in the ministry of the local church. Let's turn a few pages in the broad answer to the question, why must the Word be central here at Grace Church? To 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 makes clear the power of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 22 says, Having purified your souls, Peter writing to the Asian believers who are suffering, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. On what basis would they do this? Our hearts are anything but pure, left to our own resources. Since, verse 23, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. Did you catch that? You have been born again, not of a dying seed, which is our natural state being born in Adam, but of an imperishable seed, one that will never die, through the living and abiding, the eternal Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. This being quoted from Isaiah. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is good news. It's the good news that was preached to you. The Word of God is the means by which God breathes life into dead hearts. To abandon this as central is to abandon the very mechanism by which He gives life. So brothers and sisters, it is not enough to somehow make cursory reference to the Bible. It's not enough to use the Bible to get my message across. We must have this Word speak its message to us. It alone has life-giving power ministered through the Holy Spirit that brings new birth. It is appropriate to say, I was born again by the Word of God. 
This is what James chapter 1 and verse 18 communicates. You were brought forth by the word of truth. Gives us life. 2 Peter chapter 1 fills out our broad perspective, our broad look, and certainly this, you understand, I hope, is not conclusive. We could spend weeks on the broad perspective of looking at every text about the text of Scripture. But here we find one of the most fascinating texts in verse number 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, the second letter. We find Peter himself describing the Bible with, with, with fascinating word pictures. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, verse 16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So Peter says, When I came and told you that Jesus is alive, He's glorified, and He's going to come again, I didn't come with some crazy myth that I made up on my own. I didn't, I didn't have a guru who told me that this was what I should tell you. I wasn't in a cave somewhere, got golden tablets and have a message for you. No. No, I got this because I saw him in his glory. And this happened in Matthew chapter 17. The transfiguration was the event that Peter's referencing here. Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus in his glorified state with Elijah and Moses. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, For we were with Him on the holy mountain. I was there. I saw it. This is why I've communicated what I've communicated. And now the fascinating testimony of Peter about the Bible. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. We have something more sure. There's something more established than an eyewitness account from a disciple, an apostle of Jesus Christ who was at the transfiguration, who said, let's build some tents. Let's stay. Something better? Yes, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own imagination, interpretation. Nothing in your Bible came just simply because somebody dreamed it up. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were not dictated. They were not robotic. They were actually writing and speaking for God as the Spirit of God moved them along. There's something better than an eyewitness account to the glory of Christ at the mountain. And it is your Bible. It's my Bible. Why must the Bible be central to the life of our church family? Because there is no other sure word. There is nothing else to turn to. There is no one else's word to turn to. And that is really always the competition. The competition with the word of God in our church family will always be with someone else's word. Don't forget that. Someone else will say their word is what we need to have at the center of our existence. There is no other word that is as sure as this prophetic word that was given as the Spirit of God moved the men of God who authored this book. 66 books written over millennia by Various authors, all writing in a cohesive whole, in agreement with one another, self-testifying to the superintending work of the Holy Spirit and inspiration of the Word of God. And leaving us with no other conclusion but what Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the Word. Proclaim the Word. In season and out of season, every time, no matter if it's popular or unpopular, convenient or inconvenient, ready or not ready, go to the Word. That's the broad approach. And I certainly could spend time in that pep rally for months and never get tired. 
But let's move to a narrower approach to this big question. Let's go to one text. Let's finish our time looking at one text in particular and breaking it down a little bit more carefully. So first, we've seen a broad approach looking at various texts. Now let's, now let's approach the question, why must the Bible be central? And let's turn to, to one text that we've obviously left out. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 provides us with a narrow, condensed answer to this question. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, or with whom we must give an account. Now the context here is important. The author of Hebrews is arguing for Christ as the Sabbath rest of his people. That's the argument. The argument here is that there is an ultimate Sabbath, and it is Jesus himself. So to be resting, as in spiritual rest, which the seventh the, the seventh day, the, the sixth day, rather the week, the Sabbath day, only represents in a physical fashion in the Old Covenant. The, the spiritual rest, the eternal rest, the ultimate rest of the people of God is Jesus Himself. And those who are in Christ experience that rest and look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of that rest. Now with that basis, He says in verse number 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is still a Sabbath. In one sense, we are still Sabbatarians. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A lifelong, eternally existent Sabbath. From the works of our own efforts at righteousness, we have rested in Christ's perfections. He obeyed perfectly the law of God, so we rest. He took our wrath at the cross so we rest. We experience the ultimate rest in Christ. Now, verse 11 turns the corner to a warning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This is important for us. The author of Hebrews is writing to people and saying, don't take this for granted. Don't act as if this is assumed. Strive. Make your calling and election sure, Peter would say. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites. Why? Why would this command have such such a, a motivating factor to it? Why should they be motivated to obey that command? To strive to enter that rest? Why? What, what's the basis? Well, it's verse number 12. Because the Bible is alive and active and you can't hide from it. That's the answer. The Word of God is the only book that is alive and is active and is accurate. So three things are true about the Word of God that provide the motivation for striving to enter that rest, being concerned with our spiritual condition before God. What are they? Number one, the Word is alive. Verse 12, for the Word of God is living. If you have an old King James Version, you have quick um, that does not mean really speedy, um, hard to guard or defend in a sports sense. Quick means alive. It means living. The Bible is effective and directly linked to the life of its author. God is alive. God is alive. And so is His Word. His Spirit breathed it out. His Spirit continues to give it life. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 says that the Bible always accomplishes what God set it forward to do. Why? Because it's alive and directly connected to God Himself. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned and he makes reference to the living oracles of God. They are alive. 
And we just read in 1 Peter 1 and 23 that this living word gave us life. If you poke the word of God, it jumps with life. I'm a sucker for hunting shows when I have the opportunity. If that's gruesome to you, that's okay. I understand. Those aren't pets. And uh, anyway, in the hunting shows, there is a common way of being, being careful with the hunting show. So say there's this wild beast that is uh, going to be dinner later on. It's finally found. It's shot. There's an interval where you don't actually see what's happening. And a lot of times it'll be near dusk when they shoot it. And all of a sudden the next image will be in the dark. And they'll be walking up to the animal. That's so that there's no footage of the final fleeting moments of life for Sweet Bambi or whoever has uh, taken their final breath. And when the hunter walks up to the animal, they will often still check to make sure that the animal is really expired. And they'll do it by poking the animal in or around their face because animals like us guard their face and their eyes instinctively. If you poke the Bible, it will never, never be lifeless in response. It is always and abidingly alive. You cannot kill it. It will never be quenched. It cannot be put out. It will eternally exist because it is connected to the eternality of its author, God himself. Not only is it alive, but it's active. Second description in verse 12 is that it's active. And then there's this illustration that's given of its activity. What does it mean that the Word of God is active? And why should that motivate us to be very concerned about our standing before God? It's active like a sword. Like a sharp sword. Only it's described as it's sharper than the sharpest sword. So sharper than you can think because it's going to penetrate where you can't think. So this this sword is sharper than any other sword. Two-edged, that means both sides of the blade are sharpened. It's the common understanding in a in a Roman context, and in a Jewish world, has a double-edged sword illustration, and it goes, it penetrates where nothing else can go. And that's the idea behind what is given here. You have, a, you have an immaterial, you have a physical, and you have um, a motivational component of the penetrating work of God's Word. So look at them quickly with me, and we'll see the power of the Word of God. It penetrates... The division of soul and spirit. This doesn't mean that there there are two things. The idea here is that the soul and spirit are the immaterial part of man. It is impossible, apart from the penetration of the sharper than the sharpest sword, which is the word of God, to divide out soul and spirit. And yet the word can do that in impenetrable penetration. It can accomplish this seemingly impossible task. It penetrates the immaterial being of our lives joints and marrow now we're way more familiar with bone marrow today in one sense i think than even the original readers would have been who would merely likely cook out the bone marrow and eat it as a source of nutrients we know about taking marrow out of bones for scientific and medical reasons which helps us understand just how connected marrow is to bones and if you are related to or have experienced a bone marrow transplant is is said to be one of the most painful things you can experience because marrow is so interwoven with your bone mass. That's the idea. This goes where nothing else goes. It slices between marrow and bone. It goes into impenetrable places and it goes straight through them like a hot knife through butter. And the final picture is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now this is a warning. Don't forget this. Don't take the verse out of context. This is not a happy verse. This is a warning verse. The Word of God gets in between your thoughts and motives. In other words, you can't run from what the Word of God can penetrate. You can't hide anything. It can go where nothing else goes. Say, nobody really knows why I do what I do. And probably most of us are plagued with, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is my motive pure before the Lord? The Word discerns your motive. There is no part of you that is hidden from the sharpness of the sharpest sword. No part of me. So there is no 
ability to put a front on of acting like I'm in the rest of Jesus. Because the Word of God goes right between the activity and it slices between thoughts and intentions, motives. And it exposes even what I'm thinking behind what I'm doing. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Haven't you ever been terrified of of actually saying what you mean in certain circumstances? I mean, you're thinking something while you're doing an activity and you're thinking, I hope they have no idea what I'm thinking. Okay, I do. If you don't, that's fine. I think that occasionally. I hope it's not evident what I'm thinking. And, and the thing is, is, married life means at least one person knows exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> the Word of God exposes every motive. It will be used against us in the court of law. Apart from Christ, there will be no fudging at the judgment because the Word will slice where nothing else can go. Now that leaves us with a severe conclusion. It is not only alive and, and active, it's accurate. It's accurate about everybody. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. Now notice the author of Hebrews jumps back to God, who is the author of the word, and, and interrelates them so tightly. Nothing's hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This exposure is, and the word naked helps us. Such helpful communication from the author of Hebrews through the Spirit's power. Reckoning us back to Adam and Eve, who right after they sinned, immediately tried to cover up their nakedness. Aware of their exposure, We are exposed, every one of us, accurately exposed before God. And that leaves us hopeless. Who in the world can stand up to the probing penetration of the Word of God, which is the very means by which God exposes every human being accurately? This living Word is accurate and and pointed, and, and it's inclusive in its ability to see us. We are all seen through the Word of God by God. That leaves us with devastating conclusions unless verse 14, 15, and 16 are in our Bible. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help in the time of need. The Word of God is alive and active and accurate, and the people of God recognize its probing work and run to the only hope for righteousness under its scrutinizing gaze. None other than the perfect high priest who sympathizes with our weakness but never sinned, and who doles out generous grace from His throne because we have been brought near through His blood. Why must the Bible be central to the life of our church? Why is that such a key marker on the roadmap to faithfulness and success as a local assembly of God's people? Faithfulness and success being synonyms. Because the Word of God is unique in its living activity and its accuracy. Therefore, we must turn to it to see clearly who we are and who our great Savior truly is. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the centrality of the Word? Well, first of all, it has to be central in our life as a church. That's what we've been talking about. Worship, fellowship, instruction, confrontation of one another, applications in ministry life, programs, if you want to call them programs, the way we live out church life together, all must be rooted back in the centrality of the living Word of God. This is the communication from God about God to the people of God. This exposes our hearts to the Gospel and grace. This is where we find hope 
in our battle against sin. It's here in the Word that our thoughts and motives are exposed, our consciences are informed and convicted. It's here. So our life as a church has to revolve around the Word. It's not a social club. We're not a social gathering. We are a body of people who have been breathed life into us by this book. Therefore, we gather around the truth of this book to glorify the God who's revealed Himself in this book and made much of His exalted Son. We have a Holy Spirit indwelling us who authored this book. There's nowhere else for us to go. We must, we must revolve around the Word as a church. Number two, the centrality of, our word, of the Word in our lives as Christians. Um, let me remind you that the Bible is the basis of our growth in Christ. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them with your truth. Your Word is truth. Struggling with sin, battling for truth in your own life, the Word must be the tool of sanctification. Run to the Word. Read it. Meditate upon it. Study it. Memorize it. Apply it. Obey it. Independence upon the Spirit of God who breathed it and who lives within you applying grace from your Savior. Number three, the centrality of the Word in our life as missionaries. We are missionaries for the King. We are here as ambassadors. If we weren't here as ambassadors, we'd be in heaven. Evangelism is the only thing that happens only here and not in heaven. Recognize that. As Christians, we gather for worship, fellowship, unity, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. All of that will take place in heaven. This is just a little taste of what heaven will be. But evangelism is uniquely here. The mission is for now. And the Word of God must be at the center of our missionary activity. Clever techniques, human wisdom, all fall short in accomplishing what only the book can accomplish, which is breathing life into dead hearts. We just have been talking about this in our ABF, studying evangelism and the gospel content, two ways to live. Nine o'clock, Sunday mornings. We'd love to have you. Commercial over. Number four. The centrality of the word, the priority of the word, is connected to how accurately we recognize its value and ministry. So let me just say this in, in conclusion. A low view of the word of God. Not, not, not a low confession. Okay, So I'm not saying you don't know the right thing to say about the word of God, but the way we view the word of God. A low view of the word of God results in a low view of God. And a high view of self. So we get very skewed in our understanding if the word is not renewing our minds. And we start to be conformed to the world around us, which thinks little thoughts about God, big thoughts about me. Which cheapens grace. The cross is minimized when I am big and God is small. And it provides us with a clear pipeline to worldliness. We will look just like the world we live in. We will think like them, talk like them, act like them, live like them, pursue what they pursue, have at the center of our lives what's at the center of their lives, and think temporally about our existence. To be eternally minded is to be connected to the book. It alone provides us with a clear view of God so big that we recognize how small we are and how wicked we are in comparison to His holiness and His law. Which heightens our awareness of how powerful grace is. God saved me because I see me clearly, because I see Him clearly, because I value the Word as His living, active communication with us. Which roots out worldliness in our lives because we live not for five years from now, we live with an eye toward 500 years from now when we will be around the throne saying, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Why? Because the Word of God has transformed our thinking, renewed our minds, sanctifying us and helping us to be effective as people and as a people, the church gathered. Why must the Bible be central in our worship? Because as commitment number one states, 
The Bible is God's revelation to us in completion, perfection, and absolute authority. There is no other one's words to compare or compete with God's words. And we are a church of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Therefore, we center our lives as a church family upon the word of God. Lord, thank you for this study. Thank you for just a snippet, really, just a a little nibble on the feast that is the communication from your word about your word. May our commitment to its centrality be real. May it be practical in our lives. May it be an ongoing process in us. May it never cease to be a part of our existence as a church family. May we be marked by faithfulness and stability in the consistency with which we give ourselves to the word whether it be in the most formal applications like preaching, or whether it be in the most informal in our grace group settings or in our Sunday lunch that's coming up in just a few minutes, talking with one another. May the word resonate in us and be used by you for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of your name through sanctifying your people. We ask you to do these things because you alone can do them. And we rest upon your promises that what we have read about your word is truth from you to us. We confess this and we seek your help in the name of Jesus. Amen.